Hi, this is Catherine Nichols. I'm here with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book per year of the 20th century. Today's book is Flowers in the Attic by V.C. Andrews from 1979. We don't have a guest today, so we'll jump straight into the conversation. So this is a book that famously, practically everyone has read before. Except us, right? You didn't. Well, that's my question for you. It's like, you hadn't read it before, right? I hadn't read it before. I did not read it before. And somehow I thought it was beneath me. But many, many, many other, like, notoriously cheesy books were not beneath me. So, so I don't know what that was all about. Yeah, I, I had the impression from hearing people talk about it. Well, okay, I knew every single plot point going in. Like I knew about the um, how the the children were going to hear them talking about arsenic to poison the mice in the attic, but then it turns out that the children themselves are the mice that the adults are trying to poison. Um, like that was the level of familiarity I had with like maybe it's Wikipedia summary, and I still hadn't read it, and it totally shocked me how good it was. When I it actually read it. Actually, yeah, it's actually, I mean, on a, on a sentence level, you can definitely read aloud sentences to make fun of. Like it has oh, that for going sure. for it, which I like. I, I always enjoy that. But, but yeah, like as a, as a novel, like if you, if you take it apart, like the thing about it is that it's shameless. It's shameless about the, the subjects it approaches and the way it approaches them. It's very, it's a very private novel it reads as if it was written by someone who had never published before and did not expect to publish yeah I also thought that when um I don't know we talked before about uh people claiming to write something very quickly that they clearly did not write quickly this reads like (laughs) something in a good way this is one exactly one of those books because she said she wrote it in two weeks but then if you read more of what she said about it she then rewrote it for her second submission and then the editor made her rewrite it again. So that's a typical story. You know, when somebody says, Oh, I wrote this book in two weeks, it just poured out of me while well, it poured out of you. And then the editor made you rewrite it two times. Well, yeah, I, I think that there's, there's parts of the book that felt like they had this feeling of passion where it's like, clearly this is something she's been thinking about a lot. It's something she understands very deeply and something that she has something really important to say. And then there's every other part of the book that looks like it is composed out of, um, like if there were a big catalog of tropes from the 1970s, you know, like there's, I, I made a list of things that felt sort of both wonderfully and very precisely on trend, on aesthetic and intellectual trend of the 1970s. That felt like um, like she just hadn't thought about these things, so she was like, "All right, I'll just throw this in." I can you I'll, tell us a few a few of those things? For sure, I will definitely tell you. Hang on, I'm just pulling up my list. Okay, so um, some of them are very very specific, and some of them are much more general. Um, so <laughs> that's them, fine. That's cool. the idea. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you think it's cool that I have some specific. I think it's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Right. When they talk about the difference between a gourmet and a gourmand, I think that probably in the past, like, let's say 50 years, nobody has 
spend a lot of time on that distinction, but I think it was like a very big deal for a while, probably mm-hmm. around the, the start of like uh, diet culture combined with uh, Americans considering themselves fancy. Okay, um, that is specific. Okay. <laughs> specific, right? Okay. But then also uh-huh. the idea that if you wash your hair with shampoo multiple times a day, um, your hair would be extra gorgeous. Um, oh, I missed that one. That is that is crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the the way that she describes rooms, where she describes the specific location of furniture in a room, mm-hmm. um, I think that there's it's like some of these things are um, kind of like mystery or gothic novel conventions where you describe the color of wallpaper, you describe the color of everyone's clothes and the fabric that everything's made out of and the flocked wallpaper. Mm-hmm. But there's there's some part where she's describing like the specific location of the windows and the um, whatever, like chairs in the room and stuff. And I was thinking, I've only ever read authors from the 1970s, particularly of like younger readers books like going that hard into into describing the location of furniture. Um, the idea of not eating greasy food if it's cold or not eating grease, greasy food in general, the idea that the the younger siblings would turn their noses up at uh, bacon and eggs, that feels very mm-hmm. 1970s to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, So she cuts her bangs basically at some point. They call it front hair. Um, but the, <laughs> and she's like so upset about this and the description of what she actually cuts is like very very cool bangs like yeah <laughs> so then that this kind of like really literal minded freudianism of the book where it's like if something happens to you or if someone says that you might do a thing then you have to do it you know if someone says i think that you're gonna make out with your brother if you're alone in a room with him then now you have to make out with your brother. Um, <laughs> like the And the idea like, oh, my parents are going to have another child. It's another girl. I must extract a, par- a promise from my father instantly that he will always love me more than he loves my sister. It just, it seems yeah. literal minded about Freud, I guess in a way that seems of its time. Rape. Rape as the, as the consummation is very, very, uh, well, and also like, it's like, oh, it's rape, but then like rolling it back and being like, oh no, I, I like, maybe it wasn't like we've oh, talked I could have stopped you. Yeah. 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 That one last one. And that is luxury as lots of dresses and lingerie on hangers <laughs> and closet. Like you can't tell what a dress looks like. You can't tell if it's a good dress or not. If it's just like one of 50 dresses on hangers in a closet. This is, this is my feeling about these scenes. If we're talking about The Great Gatsby, we're talking about uh, his shirts. I kind of believe you could look at a shirt that's not on a person and you would know that it's a good quality shirt. I believe that. I don't know that you could do this. You could make the same assessment of a closet full of dresses. But I feel like it's a move that a lot of people do in the 20s. Well, you know what, you know what I love about that, which is, like the the aspect of this, which is like I almost see flowers in the attic as a kind of outsider art, um, 
Yes. And one of the things about it is that the clothes, they're expensive clothes, they're this or that, but they're not realistic. She doesn't she doesn't give you brand names. She doesn't really describe them as if they could be designer clothes of that period. Nothing. Like there's no there's no real understanding of what expensive clothes would be. And likewise the swan bed as an expensive bed is just like a 13-year-old's idea of what a luxurious bed might be like. You know, it's an imaginary thing. Yes. Yeah, every everything about the luxury is is just this crazy kind of kid's idea of what it would be. And then you come to find out that she was in her 50s when she wrote this book. Um yeah, which I think so we obviously pre-partied slightly and talked about this book before we hit record. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel we should save the, the heavy biographical thing for part two. Like having read the biographical stuff, I want two parts to this now because it's just too fascinating. Yeah. Okay. I agree with you. But I, I think that we do have to just dip into yeah. it a little yeah. bit. Dip, dip away. Go and dip. I want to dip into it and say that the way that Kathy is constantly trying to assert that she's not a child and that she is in a child's role Um it must have to do with the the fact that the um, that the author was disabled and in her mother's care um, and uses a, a wheelchair, but um, was not out in the world much. Exactly. And we don't know exactly to what degree she was cloistered. I think her publishers tended to exaggerate it and want to make it sound as if she had no friends at all, which was something that she objected to. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that in part two. But anyway, she was to some degree stuck a bit at her mother's mercy. Her mother, um, and again, I'm like, I'm straining not to launch into this whole crazy story. We'll stick to the original story that she wrote. But yeah, like that, that whole thing, like when you first read the book, like one thing about it that struck me really powerfully is the ableism in the book, which Uh, you gradually realize is an ableism of the world. Like the world is the monster in this book. It's not even just the mother, the grandmother, the family, the whole world is a monster. Yeah. And, and I think, um, the, the fact that this book would not even read as the mother being monstrous if Kathy were disabled the way that the author was like the, the idea, like that, that's, I mean, it's like a headline in every newspaper ever is like, Oh, such and such caregiver uh, murdered the disabled person that they were looking after, um, which was totally reasonable and fine for them to do. And uh, really we need to like pity the murderer in this case, because they were tired of caregiving role. Um, and they were still young and could be having sex instead of giving care to a person, etc. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, that that it, it just isn't fair, and that that's running through this book so heavily. That and that's kind of I think the, the animating passion of the book that means that all of those very seventies tropes are kind of like they're like something you recognize out the window of a car on the highway, you're like, Oh, Hey, there's like a McDonald's. (laughs) You're on this ride with somebody who's telling you something of absolutely burning importance. Yes. About her. And I just want to, I just want to mention like that, 
this was like the first thing that just stopped me in my tracks. And it's very early in the book before they've gone to the house, before they've been imprisoned. When the father dies, which is the like the initiating incident, and the neighbors have come over and they're all commiserating. And what the neighbors say is, what a pity someone so young should die when so many who were useless and unfit lived on and on and were a burden to society. <laughs> That's what they think of saying to the widow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the other thing that, that felt like that monstrous world is the slow, the way that the mother is like, oh, no, no, I love you guys so much. I'm doing it for your own good. And it's all for money and the the, the slow progress toward the mother no longer investing in the children and deciding that she's actually going to kill them instead. Um, that's, yeah. that seems like the most masterful part of the book. Like the, the way that the children feel or Kathy, the narrator feels um, and the way that the mother kind of withdraws or changes the nature of what she's doing. It's like, she no longer believes in the children's future. She no longer believes that there's something in the world waiting for the children that, that they should have. And it's also so clear that they will reflect badly on her, that if she admits to her husband that she has these four children, it will look bad for her. Yeah. And the, the billionsness of the money, the fact that it's so <laughs> much money feels also like the, um, the thing that's dancing just out of reach of a person using a wheelchair is like, how much money can you earn compared to how much you are potentially draining out of the people around you with your needs, that feeling that there is not enough money in the world to justify your existence. Um, the, yeah. the, the force of the money is it has to be colossal. Um, and it's so important. I don't know. I, I may not be making this point very clearly. I felt it very hard though. Yeah. And also like the way it's underlined over and over that a lot of money was being spent on them. A lot of money yeah. is always being spent on them. And that's so important. Oh, we're spending so much money on you. Can't you see like how ungrateful you are when we're spending so much money on you? And that it's all of these, um, like, you know, dollhouses when they're too old for it or dresses that, um, yeah. Deny the fact that Kathy is like going through puberty, that she's an adult. Um, and that, and that she's just so angry and is destroying these things. And then they use that as, you know, examples of her being unreasonable and ungrateful. That feels like what's really happening in this book to me that made the incest kind of a footnote. Yeah, it's a big incest book. But I think we need to we need to talk about how that became a universal theme that appealed to like every teenage girl. And some of that is like how like how being a teenager, you you know, you feel like you, like anyone who's ever suffered anything is just like you, of course, you know, <laughs> it's all that kind of, I am exactly like a Holocaust survivor mentality yeah. when you're 14. But, but also there's, they are also as a, in addition to being like, shut up, like, and shameful and like ungrateful and all of this, they're treated as they're called dolls over and over again. It's this really strange kind of blurring of them being uncannily sexual and uncannily platinum blonde and also Dresden dolls. 
Yeah, all the blondness. I was like, this is a lot, guys. This is a lot of blonde hair for me. I don't know. Yeah, that is also the. There's a sort of a like I called it whiteism, which is like <laughs> like when somebody is like whiter than anyone else, and it's it's held up as making them special, which is a, a, another trope which has almost entirely, thank God, died to death. But but that's re- really strong in this book. Yeah, just describing their beauty as based on their coloring. And then just describing it and describing it and describing it. It was, um, it was like on the border of uh, Village of the Damned, right? That um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, also the giver. The giver has that too. Like the blue eyes are are special. Goodness and yeah, yeah. No, that that's true. That's a good point about the giver. I. I never thought the giver took it to such, um, I mean, this, in this book, it's taken to such creepy lengths. It's like having blonde hair itself is a sign that you are the product of incest because like they're all incestuous. Like the, the parents were related. I don't know if you read all the like plot summaries of the sequels. I I most did very briefly. Yeah. I think that the, it's possible that the parents were actually siblings, even though in this book, it's like, the father is the mother's half uncle. But um, I think in a later book, maybe it says that they're actually siblings, but um, whatever. I, I'm not, I'm not sure I would love the sequels as much as I love Mm -hmm. this. But it's also like any opportunity for incestuous um, hints is, is not left on the table. Like really, like (laughs) if somebody is in the room with a family member, like either the mother is pressing the son's head to her swelling breasts when he's 16 or, you know, there's Kathy still feeling some of that envy I always had because she came in second with her father after her mother. Like everything is this Oedipal labyrinth. Um. Yeah, and like uh, I think there's a there's a scene early on where the mother is twirling around in a black lace negligee of some kind, and uh, <laughs> like watching her legs and this, uh, or like she wears her mother's bra and sees if her breasts will like fill it out and they don't, and she has feelings about that. And I was like, oh my goodness, um, this is uh, I guess how people with very very blonde hair operate. <laughs> exactly we never do this is what they've been doing behind our backs all along <laughs> but also like the the kids then become the parents to the the smaller children and that's also like it also feels like a strange blurring of roles that kind of, i will be your mama um it, like everything about it is is underlining the essential perversity of a family when you compress it and put pressure on it which i'm sure like this is also a great covid book (laughs) like anybody who needs something to read during covid this is the ideal read it is yes it's 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 got a lot of uh parallels to our time um and i think that that thing you were saying about 14 year olds feeling like everyone's suffering is actually their own suffering i i think that the the way that kathy and the brother christopher um the way that they take responsibility uh, it also felt very in keeping with 14 year old where it's like, Oh, I took, I took responsibility for my sibling. Um, I'm basically a parent that their efforts toward kind of keeping the children educated. I mean, in the book, they're justified in thinking that they are essentially the younger kids, parents, 
But I also think that it would feel resonant to uh, 14-year-olds who aren't trapped in an addicts by yeah, um, yeah. cruel people uh, of, of feeling like the amount of responsibility they're being asked to take on is just like unbelievable even if it's <laughs> and there's always there's always like very strong overtones of playing house about all of that too like that it's really um although the the little kids she really does not like pull her punches and making the little children the worst small children imaginable oh really wait tell me what tell me what they you do nothing there. but have tantrums. well for the first half of the book like once they begin to starve and be poisoned they're actually much more lovable but in the first half of the book all they do is all the all Corey and carrie do is have tantrums and complain about every single thing that happens and refuse to eat the food that they're given they, oh, they do, uh, and they're always throwing up. They're always they're always doing, like, the classic things that... I have something difficult to yeah. tell you about real little children, especially... Well, this is what I mean. Is that they're, not, they're not, like, fake little angels. They're actual children. I agree, and I think that the way that specifically the first way that the mother kind of withdraws is she's like, oh, you guys are looking after my incredibly tantrum-y small children who won't eat. Um... It's fine if you're doing that. It's fine if that's you, your job now, and I don't have to do that anymore. Uh, that that way that like taking over care of small children for a, a while can turn into that's your life now forever, and everyone mm-hmm. loves it that way. Um, that felt really realistic to me, also as a as a yeah. move that probably anyone who's taken care of small children would recognize. It's not you doing it for a while. It's now your identity is that you're the person who can handle this. Yeah, really. If anything, the most unrealistic thing is that these two teenagers turn into ideal parents. It is. Okay. I think like the one of the things that I think interestingly doesn't work that well in this book, the, the kind of sexual tension between Chris and Kathy often works and it's weird like it's one of the things that works about it is that it's so weird it's like not like normal sexual tension so it feels perverse and it feels like wrong um but when they actually have sex there's nothing sexual about it yeah that's my opinion i guess i just never really believed in chris as a character except Mm. as a a form of frustration of like watching the years that you need to do certain schooling. If you want to go to medical school, you need to achieve, you know, such and such grades and such and such school. And that time is just disappearing while you're being locked in this attic. Um, That frustration felt like it was embodied by Chris. And I was like, I don't really sort of believe him as a character. Otherwise I thought, he just seemed like he was doing all these like older brothery things. And then he was doing these kind of fantasy of boyfriendy things like that. He cares a lot about her hair. Yeah. Sort of like looking at her lustfully. I will say like as a transition into our next segment, Andrews did say, I don't write about men realistically, but only as I wish they were. Rapey. Yeah, rapey, but yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, but only to get past my little inhibition about incest when <laughs> actually I've been <laughs> longing for them for months. I think we definitely have more to say about this book. That's all for our first episode on Flowers in the Attic. Next week, we'll talk more about the life of V.C. Andrews and the context it gives to this book. Thank you, as always, to Adam Bear for our music and to Lit Hub for hosting us. If you'd like to write to us, we're at LitCenturyPod on Twitter and at LitCenturyPodcast gmail.com. See you next week. <laughs>